When I was in seminary, probably about 10 years ago, we lived in this small Kentucky town called Mount Sterling. It was a great little town, kind of uh, the epitome of the Old South in, the, in lots of ways. And because it was a small town, uh, there were some expectations, some social obligations. And one of them was that whenever you made eye contact with any person in town, whether you were in a car or walking down the road, if you made eye contact, you waved at them. Well, I wasn't really from this sort of culture, so when I first got there, I think people thought that I was, you know, perhaps one of the rudest people they'd ever met. But everybody waved at you, and you waved at everybody you saw. And, and after a while, it got to be a, a bit of a, a convention, and I got used to it. Now, I noticed that there were different kinds of waves. You know, you had the, you know, kind of photograph wave, where somebody just sort of held up a hand and, and, uh, and said hello. Or, or there were the, the men, always the men, you know, were kind of driving, and they wouldn't even lift their hand off the steering wheel. They could do a wave without ever taking their hand off the wheel. And, and you saw a lot of that sort of wave. And they, and they did this. And, and if you didn't wave, well, it would eventually get back around to you. Well, I saw so-and-so the other day, and you cannot believe it. She didn't even wave to me. Uh, it was a big deal. You had, to, you had to acknowledge the presence of everyone else around you. I noticed in Kentucky that little things matter. In small towns, little things matter. And, and, and so it was when I started to read the newspaper in this little town uh, that I was amazed at the sort of things that you would find in the newspaper. The kind of things that you would not think would be front-page news were front-page news there. I mean, it would be, you know, which minister was going to say the invocation at the Little League kickoff that year? You know, that was big news. Or, or perhaps, um, you know, who it was that was going to, uh, to, to help the, the candy company move from, from their, house, their old place on Main Street to the, to the former Chevy dealer up on Mayfield Road. These were front-page news kind of items. Not the kind of news items that you would expect. But I remember, perhaps early on, the first or second newspaper we got... Abby and I discovered there was a little section called the Camargo News. Camargo was a little town about seven miles from Mount Sterling. And even though our paper only came out once a week, we were the newspaper for the entire county. And so uh, this little town had a little section in the newspaper called the Camargo News. And here's what you would often find in the Camargo News. Betty Lou Sparks visited her neighbor Martha Cooper. The two spent the morning chatting and then went for a leisurely afternoon stroll. I'm not, if I'm lying, I'm dying. This is exactly what it would say, okay? Um, the Smith family invited the Reverend Bullock, the pastor of the First United Methodist Church, over for dinner after service. He stayed for a few hours and returned to the parsonage about four in the afternoon. And I would think to myself, who in the world writes these stories, you know? And, and it got such a, a kind of family joke around us that we would fight for the newspaper. And when it came out, uh, we would just flip past that front page news stuff and, and go right for Camargo to see who it was was visiting to whom or whatever it was. I thought to myself, this isn't news, you know? This isn't news at all. I grew up in a city. And we knew how to do news right, you know? I mean, front pages about robberies or murders or, or explosions or, or whatever. This is the what you do on the front page. You've got, you've got big stuff out there. We had hard, gritty journalists writing our news. You know, the kind of people who stay up all night and, and drink black coffee and smoke lots of cigarettes. These were the people writing newspapers, you know? They, they, weren't the, they weren't the people who were telling us about, you know, what minister was going to say the invocation at the local Little League. The newspapers where I was from, well, they majored on the big stuff, not the little things. They were concerned about the big news, the kind of news that made the headlines. They knew what people wanted to read about, and that's what they wrote. 
In the Bible, in the Gospel, we have these people, the Sadducees. They're very serious men. You shouldn't take them lightly. If you had seen them in their day, they would be very impressive. They wore um, very uh, colorful and, and, and expensive clothes. They were the men in the Armani suits in the ancient world. They, they, are, they are power brokers and everyone knows it. Now, there are not many Sadducees. They are a very select group. In fact, Jesus hardly ever gets in dispute with them. In fact, this is the only time in Luke's Gospel that he ever has a debate with the Sadducees is here in this chapter. And so they're not around very often, and perhaps it's because of the kind of people they were. They were, they were the ruling aristocracy. They were also the priestly class. They, they ran the temple. They were the ones who were in charge of, of all the worship that went on in Jerusalem at the big temple. And so they were, they were very important people. And there were some significant differences between them and the group that you probably are most familiar with called the Pharisees. Pharisees are lay people. They're very devout, but they're lay people. They don't, they don't run the temple. They're not movers and shakers. They're not power brokers. They're, they're probably important in the small towns and villages, but not in the big city and not at the temple. The Pharisees were also very devout. The Sadducees were not particularly pious. The, the, the Pharisees, they cared about things like um, about prayer and devotion, and they were very zealous for an independent Israel. They wanted to be free from Roman occupation and Roman authority. The Sadducees, not so much. They weren't really all that interested in, in private personal piety. And they very much liked the Romans. They liked the way that the Romans kind of secured them as a ruling elite class. They liked the way that the Romans kind of kept everyone at bay and allowed them to have so much power and authority. And so they weren't at all interested in an independent Jewish state. They rather liked the way that things were going. And they also, there was a big difference in terms of theology. The Pharisees believed that God rewarded good in this life in the next. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. And that after that resurrection there would be a judgment. And people would be judged. Either those who were faithful um, with reward or those who were unfaithful with punishment. They believed in the immortal soul. They believed in angelic beings. They believed in lots of things that were spiritual and, um, and otherworldly. But the Sadducees not so much. The Sadducees really believed that what you saw is what you got. If a person lived a life where they were wealthy and well-fed and well-clothed, well, that meant that God was blessing them. And if they didn't, well, that meant they were under the curse of God. And so it was that they said, look at us. God's taking care of us. If He's not taking care of you, perhaps there's something wrong with your life. And so they had this really contrasting theologies. The Sadducees weren't interested in bodily resurrection in large part because they very much liked the life that they had. Well, into this situation comes Jesus. He comes to the temple where the Sadducees are in charge, where they're running things. And His very first thing to do is to make them very angry. Jesus shows up into the temple and the Sadducees have a really good racket going on there. You see, in the temple, you, people would come and they would, they would offer animal sacrifices. They would come with an animal, a little lamb that they brought from home. And some had to travel great distances to get there. And if you brought this little animal, it had to be inspected by the priests, who were Sadducees. And if they said that the animal wasn't worthy to be sacrificed, well, then you're out of luck and you had to, to try to find a replacement. And so what they said to people, basically, was, don't worry about bringing your animal. We have pre-inspected animals for sale right here. 
You can come to the temple, buy your pre-inspected animal, know that it's safe, and you can use this in the worship of God. But here's the thing, it's in the temple. So don't bring any of your Roman money in here. Just bring it to these little tables that we have set up outside. We'll exchange your worldly currency for a spiritual currency, temple money. It only worked in the temple. It was like Dave and Buster's box right there. You know, you can't use them anywhere else. And so you bring your, your Roman money in that you use every day and you exchange it for temple money. But here's the catch. You exchange it at half its value. So you buy a pre-inspected sacrifice that was overinflated in price to begin with, and then you have to exchange it into a currency that you can't use anywhere else, and it's overinflated, so you're paying for this animal three and four and five and even six times its value. And who gets all this money? Well, the Sadducees, of course. And they will use it for the, the worship of God and for the upbuilding of the temple, but they really don't. They use it to buy themselves Nice Armani suits. This is the way the system worked. And Jesus comes in and what does he do? You know what he does. You've read the story, right? He's turning over these tables. He's angry that people are being extorted in the name of God as they come to worship. And so the Sadducees are angry with him. They're frustrated. And the whole chapter is really them. The whole chapter 20 of Luke's gospel is really them trying to get him to stumble. To say something that he'll regret. Luke writes at the end of chapter 19. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests, the scribes, that these are the Sadducees, the principal men of the people, were seeking to destroy him. They didn't find anything that they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. They want Jesus out of the picture. But he's so unbelievably popular that they're afraid to do anything. And so they try all that they can. And eventually, someone comes up with an idea. We'll trick him about the issue of, of uh, resurrection. And they come up with this story. You heard the hypothetical story. Suppose this woman is married to a man. They don't have any children. And the man dies. And the law, the Jewish law, the law of Moses, the Torah says... Okay, then, then his brother, the, the, the dead man's brother, must marry the woman. And suppose that there are six brothers to this man. So she marries seven men in succession and doesn't have any children with any of them. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, you know what's really behind this, don't you? You understand that even behind this question itself isn't just a question about resurrection. It's a question about a worldview about a misogynist worldview, where this woman is not just a married partner, she's owned by these husbands. Which husband gets to own her as property? And I think Jesus' answer really not only talks about resurrection, but it undercuts that very notion itself, that people are not property. I think the, uh, the legal term is chattel, that they were viewed like, like jewelry, or livestock, or, or whatever. This is not the way that human beings are to be viewed. She won't belong to any of them, Jesus says, because she will be her own person. She will be not identified by her husband. She'll be identified by her relationship to God for eternity. Now, I want you to think about not what Jesus is saying about being like angels. I know that immediately when we read that, that everybody was thinking about their wings and their halos. Don't do that. Don't go there. Instead, I want you to think about, about what he's saying about eternity. About this life being about preparation for the next. 
Because in this way, Jesus does very much agree with the Pharisees' belief that God rewards in the next life those things that happen in this life. And that religion isn't about a way to kind of get rich on people's backs, but rather religion is about inner transformation. It's about becoming a different type of human being. It's about faithfulness and righteousness. It's about majoring on the majors and not on the minors. You see, I think when I lived in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, those many years ago, I was a bit smug. I would open up their newspaper and read stories about the local minister saying an invocation at the Little League or about the Presbyterian ladies' tea that was taking place. And I would think to myself, this isn't news. This isn't news at all. And where's the bank robberies? Where's the murders? Where's the, where's the good stuff? Where's the political corruption going on? I mean, just feed me the juicy details. I think I was a little smug thinking that that was really the news. Maybe the little stuff was really the big stuff, and the big stuff was really the bad stuff. I don't know, I don't know how far back your memory goes, but for me, I can remember back when I was three and four years old. Um, I remember mostly uh, uh, silly things. I remember, um, I remember my first solo bike ride. I think I was five. I remember my, um, my Winnie the Pooh that one time um, uh, I, thought I wanted to see how far he could jump out the window. And so from my second story uh, bedroom window, I was dropping him out the window. And then I would run down and I would get him and I would bring him back up. And, and I tried to parachute and it didn't really work. But, uh, you know, I would just see this. And I remember leaving him out overnight. And, and he got all wet and rainy that, that, that next day. And, and it was such a... Uh, a heartbreak for me. But here's one of the things I really remember. I remember my mother as a little child. I must have been four years old. And she would rock me and sing songs. My mother was convinced that she, was, um, that she had just missed uh, her calling as a, uh, as a singer by just the slightest of margins. And so she used me as her audience and my brothers. And, and she would sing songs. And she would sing all these, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and, and uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, Julie Andrews. Uh, what was the, the one that she was in? The uh, Sound of Music. Oh, yes. And, and so you get all those. And, and, and then she would sing this one theme song from it. And, and, and we'll, we'll see how old you are here. If you know this one, there's this movie in 1965 called Alfie. And she used to sing this song, uh, What's It All About? Uh, I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard this song. I've never seen the movie. I've never even seen the, the updated version of the movie. But I remember her singing that song, What's It All About? And it occurs to me that that's a very, very good question. What is life really all about? Is it about faithfulness? And about integrity? Is it about... Is about devotion to God. And it is about preparing for the next life. Or is it just about what we see around us today? I think that question is a very, very good question. And how we answer it, well, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Amen.